0: Hello and welcome to the Faber podcast. My name is George Miller and my guest in this programme is Indian-American novelist Akhil Sharma. I met Akhil on a recent visit to London to talk about his eagerly awaited second novel, Family Life. Akhil was born in New Delhi and migrated to the United States in the late 70s. Having initially pursued a career in investment banking, he came to prominence as a writer in 2001 with his first acclaimed novel, An Obedient Father which won that year's Hemingway Foundation Pen Award, and is also available from Faber. Akhil Sharma was named as one of Granta's Best of Young American Novelists in 2007, so expectations around his second novel were considerable. But the process of writing that book was, for Akhil, a long and painful one. As you'll hear in this interview, he likens the many drafts the book went through to a war of attrition. Is testament to Akhil's skill that the reader is unaware of those years of labour as she races through the story of Ajay Mishra, who, like his creator, came to America aged eight, and, like his creator, had a brother who was left permanently brain-damaged by a terrible swimming-pool accident, which changed the lives of everyone in the family beyond recognition. It's the story of immigration and of illness, yes, but perhaps most of all, as the title puts it with disarming simplicity, a story of family life warts and all, told with humor, warmth, and a complete absence of sentimentality. This novel comes with a reputation of having been a dozen years in the making. So I began by asking Akhil about the transition from those years at his desk to at last going out into the world to talk about it.
1: You know, I have to say, I love, first of all, I love being done with the book. It was just so hard and so miserable that the fact that I no longer have to do it feels almost impossible. Like having left jail, you can't believe that you're free. I mean, I enjoy meeting people. You know, it's a very interesting experience. And it's enormously flattering to receive attention. For people to have read your book or be interested in your book is extraordinarily flattering. I really hope the book does well. You know, I really hope that it does well. But it's, um, but everything up to now has been very flattering.
0: Yeah, you've you've had some some very encouraging reviews and very um, positive feedback. I mean, the, the the proof copy of the book is is covered in, in glowing tributes from from fellow writers.
1: You know, I don't read reviews largely because I find if I were to read them and there was something negative in it, then I would feel bad, you know, and I would hold that hurt for the rest of my life. And if it's positive, then I might begin to become very vain you know I have enough enough craziness in me that I might begin become very vain I remember with my first book I thought I could see the book for what it was that it had some strengths it had some weaknesses and then the reviews began to come out and seeing especially the praise of other writers I began thinking oh I'm a genius you know and I just think that that's not a healthy there's no upside in reading the reviews.
0: Did you know what the subject of this book was going to be as soon as you finished your your first book or even before that because clearly from the the, the narrator in this book has an idea that this is his experience is something he's going to to write about from a long way back is that something that that you too felt?
1: I mean not from a long way back not from childhood not from when I first began writing I think probably in my early 20s I began thinking that this would be something that I would write about I, I mean I thought about it and then it sort of dropped away And then I began writing about it. And what's interesting for me now, I don't uh, view this book the way that I viewed the other one, my first one, in that I have a very strong desire for this book to be useful. You know, whereas with my first one, I just wanted to write a good book. The purpose of the book is to be useful. I had never thought that. And I discovered that while writing the book, that that is the thing that makes the book work for me. Otherwise I can't engage, I can't stay with this material. And the motivation for the book, the style that justifies itself within that within the book is a style which is willing to keep meeting the reader. You know, in my first book, the transitions between paragraphs were very tight. The end of the paragraph would push into the second paragraph and then the second paragraph would grab the reader. Here, I prevent the next paragraph from gripping the reader. I can give you an example if you want almost as a way to prevent that so this is um in chapter two my mother birju and i had taken everything we could from the airplane red air india blankets pillows with paper pillowcases headsets sachets of ketchup packets of salt and pepper air sickness bags birju and i used the blankets until they freed and tore around that time we started going to school I had a shy nature. You are a tiger at home, my mother said, and a cat outside. At school, I sat at the very back of the class, in the row closest to the door. Often I could not understand what my teacher was saying. I had studied English in India, but either my teacher spoke too quickly and used words I did not know, or else I was so afraid that her words sounded garbled to my ears. If I wanted to create a tight transition, I would have gone from around that time we started going to school, and I would have started the next paragraph with, at school I sat at the very back of the class. Here, because I felt enormously tender about the book, and I think some of that tenderness comes into the book. Here, I have the paragraph open with, I had a shy nature, you're a tiger at home, my mother said, and a cat outside. And that putting in this thing is a way of not creating a strong transition. And choosing to do that is a way of allowing the reader to feel comfortable and feel that he or she can move forward at her own pace. The subject matter of the book is how to be useful to other people who are going through something similar like this or who will go through something similar like this, similar to this. And that awareness as to what the book is about came late into the writing.
0: The book is is very heavily based on your own experience, but you decided to make it a novel and not a memoir. So can you say a little bit about what motivated that?
1: I wrote it as a novel instead of a memoir because I didn't know how to write a memoir. That is, I know how to use the tools of fiction. I know how to use dialogue. I know how to do certain things inside fiction. I didn't feel that I could as a memoir. I just wouldn't know how to do it, or I felt that I wouldn't know how to do it. Another reason is that I feel that I can be much more truthful in fiction than I can in memoir. So, for example, if I were writing and I was saying, the mother, Shubha, does this thing. If it were my mother, if I were to say Pritam does this thing, I would feel embarrassed, you know, I would feel very protective of the characters. And in this instance, it would have felt very much like I wouldn't have been able to be as truthful, as frank as I am uh, if it had been memoir.
0: Famously, you wrote 7,000 pages. And the finished book turns out to be about 220 pages long and that presumably is is a large part of why the the book cost 12 years of your your writing life what kind of process were you going through in order to come from 7000 pages to uh, to finished manuscript which is very very taut and and no words are, are wasted
1: for me a book has to do a certain number of things and if it isn't doing those things then the book isn't really done. It doesn't feel like it's fully baked. One of the things that it needs to do is that it needs to move very very quickly. It needs to move like a rocket. So part of the revision, part of the endless drafts was finding a way to make it read that fast. Like something if you pick it up you can't put it down. Another was to be able to represent the truth of these people you know and their difficulties and that's it isn't easy. Uh, it isn't easy without overwhelming the reader. So that was something. I think there are st- certain stylistic, I could describe them as ticks, but as I can describe them also as part of my vision of the world by which I know that, the, that this world is truthful. The book has two beginnings and two endings. At the very beginning of the book, there's a description uh, of the family. In India, we lived in two concrete rooms on the roof of a house. The bathroom stood separate from the living quarters. The sink was attached to one of the exterior walls. Each night, my father would stand before the sink, the sky above him full of stars, and brush his teeth until his gums bled. That combination of the stars above him full of skies and him brushing his teeth till his gums bled, that combination of beauty next to grossness is something that is, when I see that, I think, oh, okay, the book is nearing its end. You know, it's like when uh, the loaf of bread has risen. You know, sort of that's the same thing for me. Another thing is, in my books, everybody is right and everybody is wrong. So in this passage, then he would spit the blood into the sink and turn to my mother and say, Death, Shuba death, no matter what we do, we will all die. Yes, yes, beat drums, my mother said once. Tell the newspapers too. Make sure everyone knows this thing you have discovered. Like many people of her generation, those born before independence, my mother viewed gloom as unpatriotic. To complain was to show that you were not willing to accept difficulties, that you were not willing to do the hard work that was needed to build the country. It's very reasonable to be positive, to not succumb to gloom. But for this mother, what it is is a desire to maintain appearances. And so she is right in her action and she is wrong in her motivations. And then, my father was only two years older than my mother. Unlike her, he saw dishonesty and selfishness everywhere. Not only did he see these things, but he believed that everybody else did too, and that people were deliberately not acknowledging what they saw. My mother's irritation at his spitting blood, he interpreted as hypocrisy. Now, it is wrong to be pointlessly cynical. There's no value in that. It is only hurtful. And yet, in India, it is... Very rational, to be cynical all the time. And here you have somebody who is wrong except he is also right. And so when I begin seeing these things appear in my prose, I think, oh, the book is nearly done." And so the seven thousand pages was a way of getting to that point,
0: as I said earlier, it seemed to me that that your use of words was was so carefully judged and so sparing, you never, there was never anything that seemed indulgent or, or or lyrical. Everything seemed so well calibrated, and I wondered whether were, were earlier drafts where you were more lavish in your description of perhaps the India they left or the the physical reality of the the of the America that they they went to and was that something that you consciously pared back, or is that really how how your prose comes out? I mean, there were drafts which were much more
1: sensual. On the whole, though, I tend to write in a relatively spare way this book is even more spare than i would write normally the reason it is that way is that i found that because of the very nature of the subject matter and the very the fact that there is not a plot required me to make things more spare so that the reader would keep moving forward so it was needing to develop a style that would match the the nature of the story
0: that's something that, what, that I really really reflected on having read the book because I sat down and I read it at a sitting and there is this great sense of forward momentum and only afterwards when I was reading some of the things you'd said where you say it doesn't really have a plot then I thought well that's yes that's that's true really but as you're reading it you are carried forward and you don't sort of stop to reflect that you know there isn't a strong sense of plot as in, in some novels.
1: You know when we love people we don't care that they're boring. We don't care that they're weird. And so by generating compassion for these characters and by generating sympathy, we can also generate interest for these characters. And that interest, you know, as a writer, I have to guard my reader's interest. You know, it's a way of protecting my characters as well. And that's what allows a reader to read the book quickly.
0: I mean, it seemed to me that you have particularly high regard for how the reader will experience your book. I mean, it varies among novelists, I think. Some some profess to, you know, simply to write what they want to express and not worry about how the reader will read. But you, you really think about the whole experience that the reader will have from beginning to end. And as you were talking about the transitions, you're talking about really kind of quite finely calculated things which will have an impact on the way the reader absorbs your tale.
1: You know, if I'm talking to somebody I love, somebody I care about, I am very careful with what I say, you know, because I want to, you know, I want that person to understand and to feel, even when I'm saying some things that are difficult, you know, like, hey, don't do this, you know. I want this person to be able to appreciate that it isn't out of any meanness, right, and that I love this person. And so I have to be very careful. I have to think a little bit about how this person will take things in. The same is true for a reader, you know. If you are trying to be of service to your reader. You want to be careful. So that's it is. I am very aware of my reader.
0: Do you have a a reader in your mind as you write?
1: I think I, to a large extent, I tend to write for other writers, but they're writers from a very particular tradition. That is, I write for writers like Hemingway or Faulkner. They might seem very different, but they're both writers who aimed for a mass audience, for bestsellers. And so these writers aim for, uh, to some extent, even when they're doing very difficult things, they're trying to educate the reader and prepare the reader for what is what is occurring.
0: I have to ask if you explored Hemingway's life and work in the same way that the narrator in your novel does, because that's that's one of the it's, it's very interesting but it's also quite funny the way that he doesn't start reading Hemingway he starts reading about Hemingway in order to kind of almost reverse engineer the um, the effect of Hemingway's prose by discovering about his life and his style.
1: I did read Hemingway that way. That way, that is, I began reading his criticism about him first. And then I began to read his fiction, and I found his fiction dull and felt that this was my fault, that there was something lacking in me that I couldn't appreciate him. And so to teach myself, to force myself to see what he was doing, I began doing small things like writing the number of words in a sentence or reading chapters backwards, you know, all sorts of little things like that. And I still do things like that to force myself to read carefully like I once read um, Tolstoy's novella, Childhood Backwards. So I read the last line, the second to last line, the third to last line as a way to force myself to see what the sentences are doing.
0: This experience that your narrator has of controlling what's happening to him or processing or finding a way to cope with what's happening to him through reimagining it in writing is that—is that something which even if you know you said at the beginning you didn't envisage writing this particular book when you were a teenager but, but were you already discovering that writing could have this transformative power when you were young?
1: For me what writing was doing was that it was allowing me to have distance from my own awful life you know that's what it was doing and by saying oh this is occurring and I can now put it in a book. It was a way of converting it into something valuable. And in the process of conversion, it was separating me out from ex- the person. Like I was not merely experiencing it, I was taking advantage of it. I was exploiting the experience. And that's something that I that I went through and was incredibly
0: helpful to me. As you were writing this book, did you know that your parents were unlikely to read it? Did that play a part in you're thinking about it?
1: I think if my parents had said, don't write it, I wouldn't have written it. But they were okay with it. My parents want something good to come out of this. There was uh, a woman named Terry Schiaibo who was brain dead and she was dying and she was on life support. And there was a big controversy about whether to keep her on life support support or not. And my father said, you know, Akhil, you should write something about it. We actually know what this is about. You know, we know what it, what the choices are and how we see things. And so I think that they view what has occurred as, look, it isn't something that we would want, but if something, if this is the thing that's occurred, let's try to make the best of it. You know, let's try to turn this into something useful. But they wouldn't want to read it. I wouldn't want to read it either if I were them. You know, why go back into such difficulties? My wife also doesn't want to read it. To me, I think it makes sense that if you're, that your loved ones would prefer not to read these things.
0: The task, as you've described it, beginning a new document, writing it again and again and again, it does literally sound Sisyphean. It sounds like pushing that boulder up and up the hill and, and then starting again. I mean, did it feel at any point that it was just going to be impossible, that you would never achieve the novel that you wanted and you would have to set it aside and go and do something else?
1: Uh, it felt often like this is not going to work out bad luck can happen to anyone so why should it not happen to me why am i so special that i wouldn't have bad luck happen to me but i also i didn't know how to give up you know because it was i had spent so much time that i didn't know how to exit it so that was a lot of what was going on that i had to keep enduring keep plugging away with this with this idea that eventually it would end so it was a hopeless task. It was just really a true torture. I mean, I can't speak badly enough about this thing.
0: When you woke up in the morning and came back to consciousness, what would you what would you feel?
1: I would feel sick. I would feel so unhappy. And then I would get up and I would go sit down. And I would read, drink my coffee and I would go sit and uh, read the paper. And then I would go to the computer and you know after that first hour and a half of sort of waking up I would be okay I could work but every morning I would wake up with fear fear depression uh, every single day
0: and I've read you made yourself write for five hours a day
1: yeah I used a stopwatch I was afraid because I was producing all these pages and they were useless so what I did was I would write with this little stopwatch uh if a phone call came, I would stop the stopwatch. If I checked my email, I would stop the stopwatch. And the idea was just to do, to say at the end of the day, well, I did my part, I showed up, I sat there for five hours every single day. That was the satisfaction that was ex- available to me. I couldn't say, oh, I finished this chapter, I moved on. Because I had finished endless numbers of chapters. I had finished endless number of pages. You know, That was meaningless to me.
0: Did you have breakthrough moments or was it more organic than, than that?
1: I don't know if I really had breakthrough moments. I mean, I, there were places where I thought, oh, this is a good sentence, or I thought, okay, this is working. But it was largely a matter of battling it out. You know, There were some moments, like the structure of putting in the opening couple of paragraphs, that first beginning, that felt like a real breakthrough, like a real solution to some of the technical problems. But it was more a war. It felt like a war of attrition.
0: You took some big decisions. You switched it from a third-person narrative, for example, to a to first-person narrative, which must have completely changed the whole perspective, the whole attitude of that you had towards the story.
1: I did. I mean, there were all sorts of things that I did. I mean, I moved it from third-person to first-person. First, I had it third-person from the child's point of view. And this was a way to allow a certain organic distance. Then I, um, the problem was that there wasn't much happening. And so I thought I would... Floated around among various characters. Then I tried writing it from the father's point of view and then the mother's point of view. And these are four completely different drafts. Then I switched it to first person. And then for me, the big, the really big breakthrough m- might have been I read, a, I was reading Chekhov and I saw how Chekhov was using um, certain elements, certain descriptive elements like sound and smell and feel as a way of generating a very strong, a palpable sense of present tense. And I thought, I wonder if I can reverse it. I wonder if I can, uh, if I were to strip out these things, whether I can create a reality which is a little bit thin, you know, so there's almost no sound in this book other than dialogue, there's almost no smell in this book. There's very, very rarely do we have somebody saying, oh, you know, the sun was hot on my neck, on the back of my neck, none of that stuff. It's very much visuals and interiority.
0: And that felt like a big breakthrough. And because, as you say, there isn't much description of those senses, when you do describe those senses, it seemed to me they had a a great impact. So, for example, when the boy smells this smell of nail polish remover from his father and it's the the alcohol that he's exuding, Mm -hmm. that really makes an impression, I think. And also, at night, you just describe the sound of the father's footsteps creaking down the, the the passageway and the buzz of the electric light. And these are things which wake him up mm-hmm. uh, in the middle of the night and remind him of his father's alcoholism. So it seemed to me that when you do use those senses, they, they do really stick in the reader's mind.
1: Yeah, it's been very,
0: if you withhold, when they do appear,
1: it's sort of astonishing. I use very, very little figurative language. And so the few moments when I do, they're all moments that are related to interiority you know, mostly you want to have language walk alongside reality, but periodically reality begins to outstrip language. And so you need to then give language flight, which is when metaphor comes. And so there's that moment when Ajay is holding his girlfriend and he's so happy, and that he says, Oh, it was like holding a bouquet, or when he's feeling such guilt and shame for being okay and he says you know that he went to school and when he would move around he would everything he did reminded him and of guilt and it was like wearing wet clothes where each time you move the wetness of the clothes reminds you that oh you're cold you're wet but it's a very particular type of language and when you use certain things so sparingly when they are used they have an explosive effect And after 12 and a half years, how did you know you were finished? Uh, I read the book and it just felt like a rocket. So I printed out my last draft and I sat down one day and on the floor of my living room where I often sit, my back to the sofa and I began reading it and it just, I couldn't stop reading it. I found it so interesting that I wanted to turn pages, I wanted to skip pages, because I wanted to see what happens next. And I thought, okay, now it's doing the thing that I wanted to do. That's when I said, okay, it's done, I can send it in.
0: And then you have that period where you take your hands off it, and it's it goes and has a sort of separate life, and other people begin to comment on it.
1: Mm-hmm. It's strange, you know, that as a writer, my... Uh, the writer's relationship to a book is very much like a parent or maybe a bad parent like a part of me wants this book to do well so I will do well right so I wanted to sell a lot of copies I wanted to win prizes but the reality is that I it is no longer my book it is now the book of whoever picks it up and begins reading it And so the thing that matters is the reader's relationship with the book and the book's relationship with the reader that is the reader might not be ready for this thing and then at some point later on when the reader has experienced illness for example then the book will matter to him or her and it's very much like a child like you know a parent might want to control the child but then at a certain point what matters is the child's relationship you know the grown child's relationship to his loved ones, and these loved ones' relationship to the child. You know, it's a hard thing to give up that, to give up that control.
0: Akhil Sharma. Family life is out now in hardback. For more information about it, go to faber.co.uk. That's all for this edition of the Faber podcast, but I'll be back again soon with another program. You can make sure you never miss the program by subscribing to it on iTunes. It's free, quick, and easy. Go to iTunes and type Faber in the search box on the podcast page, and a subscription is just a couple of clicks away. Or you can find a full podcast archive on SoundCloud. Search for Faber Books SoundCloud. Until next time, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.